Good morning. We're here today to consider the nominations for four important positions. Ambassador John Bass to be the Undersecretary for Management. Mr. Scott Nathan to be the Chief Executive Officer for the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. Ambassador Mark Brzezinski to be the Ambassador to Poland. And Mr. Michael Adler to be the Ambassador to Belgium. Congratulations to all of you on your nominations. I appreciate your willingness and that of your families, because we understand families are part of the sacrifice to serve uh, our country in this capacity. Uh, before I start any comments, I understand that our colleague uh, from Virginia, from the great Commonwealth of Virginia, the former governor of Virginia, Senator Warner, is here to uh, introduce uh, Mr. Nathan. Senator Warner. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, appreciate that recognition. and. To you and Ranking Member Risch and members of the committee, um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to make um, an introduction. I also, I know Ambassador Bass a bit, uh, but I know Mark Brzezinski and Ambassador Brzezinski and Michael Adler very well. You've got an extraordinary panel uh, in front of you today. But, um, you know, we all get called upon sometimes to, to do these introductions. Um, but today is something that is very special to me because I get the chance to introduce and present to the committee somebody who's a close friend, trusted confidant, and somebody I know who is going to be an excellent choice to lead the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation, my friend Scott Nathan. I've known Scott for more than 15 years. I first got to know him uh, in my waning days, as you mentioned, when I was still had a real job, governor. Um, and Scott was introduced to me initially as a like-minded like -minded advisor on security issues, having come up in the business world and then transitioned to the public sector. Scott, I think, and I say this particularly to my uh, friends on the Republican side, brings a very pragmatic outside perspective to the issues of economic diplomacy, trade policy, uh, emerging markets, and international development. Over the years, I've come to appreciate Scott's wisdom and expertise and I, I can tell you, he is practical, collaborative, and very independent-minded. But I've also got to know him as a friend. I don't want to steal his thunder, but he's got his wife, Laura, and his uh, two kids, Asher and Leah, behind him. Um, I've got to know them, frankly, since they've been born. Um, but I, it's, I've seen him and his family uh, on the personal side, and this is a, these are good people. Um, my message to you today is, uh, I think... The DFC is an incredible, valuable tool. Senator Rich and I serve on the Intelligence Committee together, and uh, we know the challenges our nation faces as we uh, compete with China and other adversaries in terms of economic development. I think in Scott, you're going to find somebody who is uniquely um, suited uh, for this job. He comes here from both, with both law and business degrees in hand. Um, he had an extraordinarily impressive career in the private sector for almost two decades. He worked in the investment business, uh, becoming a very prominent partner at a major fund, where he also was, served as a role of risk management, something I think, again, that's terribly important in this new role at the DFC. He then transitioned to government service, um, working at both OMB doing policy work and the State Department, where he worked in promotion of American economic interests abroad. Uh, again, something that I think will serve him well at the DFC. Um, I know you've got a lot in front of you. I will skip through all the wonderful other descriptions of the important role of the DFC, uh, but I can think of no one that I'm prouder to introduce, prouder to present, 
and give more full-fledged endorsement to than my friend Scott Nathan. And with that, I thank the chairman, the ranking member, for, for the courtesy of allowing me to go first. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Senator Warner, for that glowing introduction of uh, Mr. Nathan. Um, I know that being governor is an exalted status, uh, but some of us believe that uh, being a U.S. senator is a real job as well. So uh, on that note, I'll, I'll, I'll let you go to some other important meeting that I'm sure that you have at the Intelligence Committee. Uh, Senator Shaheen and I also have ideas on the governorship at some point. <laughs> yes, thank you. I just realized I'm surrounded by former governors. So, um, all right, Ambassador Bass, um, it's good to see you again before the committee. Uh, you have a long and distinguished public service trajectory that I believe will serve you well upon your confirmation to be the Undersecretary of State for Management. As you well know, Secretary Blinken inherited a damaged and depleted department. As I documented in a committee report last year, Diplomacy in Crisis, the last administration's repeated assault on State Department personnel, management, and resources were unconscionable and dangerous for long-term U.S. foreign policy interests. Confidence in leadership decayed and key bureaus were gutted. In fairness, as I have acknowledged before, many institutional, budgetary, and morale problems are also the result of multiple administrations and congressional action and inaction as well. That's why I believe there is now broad bipartisan consensus that critical efforts needed to be taken to address core structural and resource issues that have too long plagued the department. While I was encouraged to hear Secretary Blinken's speech on State Department modernization in October, I hope you'll provide us some more specifics today on how you intend to execute each of the five pillars he outlined, particularly on how you plan to build capacity on critical issues like cyber and technology, climate and global health, and to improve diversity at the department. Separately, I'd like to take a moment to speak about your recent work in Afghanistan, as this committee would also be interested in hearing your views on the evacuation efforts that you helped oversee this past August. While the State Department performed heroically in that effort, the fact of the matter is that the Department and the United States never should have been in the position where that sort of desperate heroism was necessary. To my mind, and this is directly relevant to the job that you have been nominated for, it speaks to serious shortcomings in the department's planning and contingency response capacity. I recognize that today's hearing isn't a postmortem on Afghanistan, but I am interested in what lessons you learned from this experience and how you'll apply those lessons as the deputy for management uh, if confirmed. Mr. Nathan, congratulations on your nomination. I appreciate your visit uh, with me yesterday. If confirmed, you'll be leading an agency that is without question an important new asset for advancing U.S. economic competitiveness in the global economy, alleviating poverty and improving opportunity, growth, and stability in countries, all of which are incredibly important U.S. foreign policy objectives. However, during the DFC's brief history, there have been many questions raised from the decision to grant authorities to the DFC to pursue domestic deals under the Defense Production Act, to the series of projects in upper middle income countries, to overpromising on prospective investments, there's a need for a cultural reset at the DFC. Yet the agency has demonstrated its potential coming into existence at a critical moment for enhancing U.S. development finance policies and programs with a significant potential to be a vehicle to provide support to our friends and allies who are under increasing economic 
and diplomatic pressure from Beijing. I look forward to hearing your vision for ensuring the DFC fulfilling the BUILD Act's mandate to pursue projects that advance clear development outcomes while also taking strategic approaches for advancing U.S. foreign policy objectives. This includes the importance of addressing the climate crisis, the need to convert the global economy to clean energy, as highlighted during uh, last month's COP26. Ambassador Brzezinski, welcome back to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Your nomination comes at a critical time uh, for Poland, and I must note the United States' steadfast commitment to Poland's security. As you know, Poland is a longtime friend and NATO ally, and nothing will undermine our commitment to supporting Poland in defending NATO's eastern flank. The illegitimate Lukashenko's regime use of migrants and hybrid tactics at borders, um, Poland's border is unacceptable and inhumane. Poland is on the front lines, and the United States will always support Poland in defending its territorial integrity and security. However, while Poland's security is of utmost importance, we must also underscore that NATO is strengthened by our commitment to democratic values and human rights. To that end, I am deeply concerned by continued attacks on the independence of Poland's judiciary. In Warsaw, it will be your job to urge the Polish government to live up to its commitments as a NATO ally that supports a vibrant judiciary, free press, and rights for all of its citizens. And I'm confident you're the right choice to represent the United States in Warsaw. Finally, Mr. Adler, congratulations on your nomination. I trust that if confirmed, you'll draw from your experience in the private sector to advocate for U.S. interests in Belgium. As you know, hundreds of U.S. firms are represented in Belgium. In 2020, it was the 13th largest recipient of U.S. exports, and we appreciate Belgium's support for the U.S.-EU Trade and Technology Council to further strengthen transatlantic ties. In addition, we're grateful for Belgium's partnership in the Global Coalition to Defeat ISIS. Belgium is a NATO partner, a leader on human rights and democracy, and I look forward to getting you to Brussels as soon as possible to continue to strengthen our relationship with that important ally. We look forward to each of your testimonies. Let me turn to the distinguished ranking member, Senator Rich, for his comments. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, first of all, on the nomination uh, of Undersecretary of State for Management, this position is not only responsible for keeping our diplomats safe and embassies functioning properly, but also with supporting and improving State Department workforce. It plays a crucial role in helping coordinate State Department operations with this committee. There are enormous pressures on State Department personnel that need immediate attention. Embassy personnel are being attacked in what State is awkwardly calling anomalous health incidents. All of us, on a bipartisan basis, are very concerned about this situation. We've struggled to get straight answers out of the Department and what is going on. Moreover, uh, in many posts, our dip diplomats are having trouble getting outside of the embassy walls to meet with the local population putting a, a, a serious strain on their ability to advance vital U.S. national interests. We know Russian, Chinese, and Iranian diplomats do not have these uh, restrictions. Determining the future of this workforce and how it operates is one of the most important responsibilities of this position and one that could have ramifications for years, if not decades. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on these important issues. On the nomination of CEO of the U.S. International Development uh, Finance Corporation, the DFC has the potential, the potential, to serve as one of the most influential tools to unleash the power of the private sector, lift countries out of power, and counter the predatory state-sponsored development models pursued by strategic competitors. 
To that end, the DFC should focus on two core missions. It should promote economic freedom through support for private sector-led growth in developing countries, and it should protect economic freedom through investments in sectors of strategic in, uh, significance to the United States. Investments in the digital economy, uh, advanced technologies, energy infrastructure, supply chains, and public health are critical in an era of strategic comp uh, competition with China and to provide alternatives to state-directed investments. Senator Warner's reference to the Intelligence Committee and our work in uh, overseeing these types of matters is important, and certainly this agency uh, plays a, a crucial, crucial role there. Last month, I sent a letter to the DFC expressing serious concerns that 18 of the 21's current solar project sources, uh, source panels from China, even after revelations of forced labor in China's solar industry. That situation is unacceptable and unsustainable. If confirmed, I expect you to fix it and make sure DFC supply chains do not touch forced labor. Additionally, the agency's keen interest in pursuing deals in wealthy countries is inexplicable. The DFC must shrug off its old OPEC mindset and fully embrace the new agency's dual mission. It must strike a healthier balance between pursuing projects with a greater development focus and those guided by strategic interests. On the nomination of our ambassador to Poland, I'll associate myself with the remarks of the chairman regarding our commitment to Poland and its security. Uh, Poland is under a growing threat from Russia and its proxy, Belarus. I'm glad to see a growing U.S. troop presence there, but being an ally requires more than just military cooperation. Values matter. The Polish government seems set on consolidating its control over previously free media and determined to end the largest U.S. investment in Poland, Discovery, Discovery Media's ownership of TVN. Both decisions are counter to the commitments to human rights and freedom of speech we uh, expect that our allies will maintain. I expect, to, uh, I expect to hear your thoughts on all of these critical issues. Finally, on the nomination of Ambassador to Belgium, Brussels is home to many European NGOs and international organizations, as well as headquarters of the EU and uh, NATO. It is an important post, especially within the context of Brussels' influential position in European politics. Like in many European countries, China has sought to expand its influence in Belgium by purchasing stakes in important Belgian companies, particularly ports. I'd like to hear how you plan to address this growing issue, should you confirm. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Rich. All right, so we'll start uh, the uh, testimonies. Uh, we'll start with Mr. Nathan and just work our way down uh, the dais. Uh, we'd ask you to summarize your comments in about five minutes or so. Your full statements will be included for the record without objection, um, and uh, feel free to introduce any members of your family that are here. Mr. Nathan. Chairman Menendez, uh, Ranking Member Risch, and members of the committee, thank you for having me here today and for the time you and your staff have spent with me uh, prior to this hearing. Senator Warner, thank you for your kind introduction and for your friendship over many years. With me here today are my wife, Laura, and our two children, Asher and Leah. I'm grateful for their love uh, today and every day. My parents and my brother are also watching this hearing, and I want to acknowledge their role in getting me to this moment. I'm honored to be nominated by President Biden to be the Chief Executive Officer of the U.S. International Development Finance Corporation. Throughout this confirmation process, I've relied on the input, guidance, and support 
of the current acting as well as the former leadership of both DFC and its predecessor, OPIC. I'm deeply grateful to Adam Bowler, Ray Washburn, Elizabeth Littlefield, Rob Mosbacher Jr., David Bohigian, Edward Burrier, and Dev Jagadeesan. The value and spirit of these conversations reflect the broad support for this agency. I also want to thank the fantastic group of hardworking professionals at DFC, as well as throughout the interagency, whom I've so far met in preparation for this confirmation process. This is an exciting and important time for DFC. The agency is less than two years old, but the expectations for it are high. DFC was created with bipartisan support and a consensus that it could be an effective tool of US foreign policy. The needs of the developing world are too great to meet with government resources alone. And DFC can be a catalyst for bringing private capital to worthy projects. By bringing together OPIC and DCA through the BUILD Act, setting a new dual mandate, both developmental and strategic, and providing expanded tools and investment targets, Congress has challenged DFC to make a greater impact. My consultations with members of this committee and staff have been very valuable. I look, if confirmed, I look forward to working with Congress to shape and to continue to grow DFC's capabilities and capacity so that it can properly fulfill the responsibilities it has been given. DFC mobilizes capital for private sector-led growth in the developing world and provides a clear alternative to state-directed investments by authoritarian governments. DFC's product offering gives developing countries a positive choice, reflecting our democratic values for meeting their infrastructure and economic needs. While investing in private sector companies and projects, DFC can insist on transparency, rule of law, financial sustainability, and high environmental and labor standards. Unlike some of our strategic competitors, we do this with no strings attached. I believe in the power of the private sector, free markets, and inclusive economic growth to improve lives and bring countries out of poverty. I entered adulthood right as the Cold War was coming to a close. Just months after I graduated college, the Berlin Wall fell and the world changed dramatically. For the first time, millions in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union tasted freedom and could pursue their own economic liberty. This sea change profoundly impacted me. I lived in the region during this time of wrenching change and great optimism. And after completing law school and business school, I focused my early career primarily on emerging markets, especially in these economies in transition. After nearly 20 years in the investment business, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to devote the second chapter of my career to public service in roles at the Department of State and OMB. At State, I focused on commercial advocacy of, for US companies, economic diplomacy, and the promotion of entrepreneurship. The challenges facing the developing world can seem overwhelming, but the opportunity for DFC to be part of the solution is enormous. If confirmed, I will draw on my investment, managerial, and government experience to help DFC pursue this mission. I will work hard to make sure the agency has the right strategy, resources, structure, processes to efficiently and effectively source and analyze investment opportunities and to properly measure and monitor those that make it into the portfolio. 
I'm so grateful to have been born in this country. I would be proud to again have the opportunity to work on behalf of the American people and represent the interests of the United States. Thank you for considering my nomination. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Ambassador Bass. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Risch, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for this opportunity to appear before you as the President's nominee to be Under Secretary of State for Management. I want to thank President Biden and Secretary Blinken for the opportunity to again serve the nation if I am confirmed. Uh, I'm joined today by my wife, Holly, a fellow diplomat who has represented our nation in Afghanistan and five other countries, and I am enduringly grateful for her love and support. Uh, my sister, Kristen, is also with us today, and we are joined in spirit by an extended family that includes the one we're blessed with by birth and marriage and the family we have made through shared service and sacrifice overseas. Uh, I'd like to begin this morning by honoring first the memory of the Marines, Navy corpsman and soldier who died while protecting the rest of us working to evacuate fellow Americans and at-risk Afghans from Kabul in late August. Their loved ones have been and remain in our thoughts and prayers every day. It has been an honor to serve three previous times as a, a presidential appointee, and I welcome this new opportunity, subject to the advice and consent of the Senate, to give back to an institution that I love, but one that I and many colleagues have not always liked. I swore my first oath to support and defend the Constitution in 1988. And since then, the world and the issues and challenges at the center of American diplomacy have changed a great deal but how we work at state as representatives of our government and as diplomatic practitioners has not kept pace with the times. The reasons for this are complex. They reflect the choices of multiple administrations on both sides of the aisle. But the result is an institution that relies too heavily on its dedicated professionals to bridge the gap between what state's infrastructure, technology, and practices enable, and what our responsibilities to the nation actually require. And as the President, Secretary Blinken, members of this committee, and many outside observers have underscored, it's past time to remedy that. If confirmed, I will do everything I can to prepare the State Department to tackle the challenges we will face in the coming years. And concurrently, with your support and partnership, I will do my best to ensure the women and men of the State Department have the guidance and receive the resources they need today to help our fellow citizens protect the country's interests, promote our prosperity, and uphold our values in 195 countries and nearly 200 international organizations worldwide. Much of the public attention focuses on our headquarters here in the Capitol and the remarkable work of thousands of talented civil and foreign service professionals serving here. I believe the, great, the department's greatest impact, though, occurs well beyond the Beltway. Patriotic Americans and dedicated local staff in our embassies and consulates 
colleagues working in 98 offices in 31 states across our country, they all serve our nation where it matters most, as demonstrated by their unstinting effort during the pandemic to bring home over 100,000 Americans and other residents, uh, even while we were enduring staffing shortages and drawdowns ourselves. If confirmed, I will work to reinforce our focus on the field, and that includes doing everything possible to support and care for colleagues and families suffering from anomalous health incidents, even as we work to uncover the cause of those incidents. And it also means managing sensibly threats and risks so our people can engage, persuade, and represent the nation in every environment overseas. Diplomacy is a contact sport, and who we dispatch can matter as much as what they do or what they say. And as Secretary Blinken recently underscored, our diversity as a nation in backgrounds, gender, race, religion, and ethnicity is among our greatest competitive advantages. We sell ourselves short and undercut our service to all Americans if we fail if we continue to fail, to capitalize on that strength. And I am committed to expanding efforts to attract talented Americans from all walks of life to join the department's team, to enable them to thrive as representatives of the United States, and to support them throughout a career so that our department truly reflects the richness and diversity of America. We face significant challenges as a nation and as the oldest cabinet department. And it will take sustained focus and resources for the department to most effectively advance our interests and help middle and working class Americans prosper in the years ahead. In my prior appointments, I benefited from close coordination with members of this committee and the wider Congress. And if confirmed, I intend to work closely with you on these compelling priorities. Thank you again for this opportunity to appear today, and I welcome your questions. Thank you. Ambassador Brzezinski. Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today. It is an extraordinary honor to be President Biden's nominee to become the next U.S. Ambassador to Poland. I'm accompanied today by my brother Ian Brzezinski, no stranger to this committee, who served on the Republican staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for a number of years. Before I begin, I would like to take a moment to thank the staff of U.S. Embassy Warsaw, U.S. Consulate Kraków, and Consular Agency Poznan for generations of hard work. It is with genuine admiration and respect that I have witnessed their dedication since my first visit to Poland in 1990. I last appeared before this committee in 2011. I am proud of what I accomplished as U.S. Ambassador to Stockholm. The embassy team advanced Sweden's partnership with NATO, including key counterterrorism goals. We cemented important partnerships on energy diversification and brokered Volvo's first ever investment in the United States that brought thousands of high-paying manufacturing jobs to South Carolina. With the Swedes, we embraced the memory of Raoul Wallenberg, 
and the importance of not being indifferent to the Jewish community. I know Poland well. I am a child of parents cast on America's shores by World War II. My late father, Zbigniew Brzezinski, was born in Warsaw. He lived his first 10 years of life in Przemysl, now located on the border of Poland and Ukraine. By luck, my grandfather was assigned to be Consul General in Montreal just before Nazi Germany invaded Poland in 1939. Had his family been caught in Warsaw, they likely would have suffered a similar fate of other Polish diplomats under the Nazis. Death. My father did not speak fluent English until he was 15 years old. In our family, the words niech żyje Polska, long live Poland, and jeszcze Polska nie zginęła, still Poland is not defeated, meant something. Shared values and the willingness to defend them. My mother, the sculptor Emily Benish, who is watching today, is a refugee from Czechoslovakia. The child of Czech diplomats, she made it to Berkeley, California in the middle of World War II, her ship attacked by German U-boats on the way from London to the United States. I am here before you today, thanks truly to the grace of God. As a Fulbright scholar, I was assigned between 1991 and 1993 to research and write about Poland's new constitutional tribunal. My book, The Struggle for Constitutionalism in Poland, tells the successful story of Poland's developing constitutional and rule of law institutions after the collapse of communism. Respect for enduring constitutional arrangements became a central test of the effective operation and growth of free market democracy. It still is, and if confirmed, I will continue to promote our shared commitments to uphold fundamental freedoms and the rule of law as essential to democracy and central to the US-Polish relationship. In particular, I will continue to underscore to Polish authorities the importance of an impartial judiciary, independent media, and respect for the human rights of all, including LGBTQI plus persons and members of other minorities. The US and Poland have a historic friendship, but we must also agree to share responsibilities for humanity's future and the democratic principles of the West. If confirmed, first and foremost, I will commit myself to the safety and security of everyone working for Mission Poland and to the safety and security of US citizens living, working, and traveling in Poland. I will also commit to continue and strengthen our security cooperation with our stalwart ally, Poland, where the enduring rotational presence of some 4,500 US troops defends NATO's eastern flank. I will deepen and broaden the partnership between Poland and the United States to spearhead economic growth in the region, including through the Three Seas Initiative. If confirmed, I will work with Poland to support the government and people of a peaceful and whole Ukraine, as well as the aspirations of the Belarusian people for a democratic Belarus. I will partner with Poland to promote investment in clean energy, including renewable energy, hydrogen-based energy, 
and help to bring zero emission nuclear energy to Poland. If confirmed, I will commit myself to deepening the U.S. bilateral cooperation and advancing U.S. policy priorities in Poland. Thank you for the opportunity to, to appear before you today. I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Mr. Adler. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and members of this distinguished committee, thank you for the privilege of appearing before you today. I'm deeply grateful to President Biden for the confidence he has placed in me to become the United States Ambassador to the Kingdom of Belgium. I would like to acknowledge my three children, their spouses, my seven grandchildren. They have all given me unwavering love and support in this endeavor to serve my country. My commitment to public service is driven by my love of family, who motivate me to make our country and the world a better place for them and for the future. Endless gratitude goes to the love of my life, my wife Judy, for almost 50 years. Judy has been my partner and has always been devoted and supportive of the numerous initiatives and causes that I have been involved in and led. Judy made it possible for me to pursue all my business and civic endeavors. I would also like to recognize Judy's parents, Ellen and Fred Selling, who were both Jewish immigrants and fled Germany from Nazi persecution. After moving to the United States, Fred joined the US Army during World War II and served as a translator. He helped to liberate concentration camps in Germany. I would also like to remember my parents, who taught me by example the importance of public service, social justice, and community service. Bunny and Sam were proud Americans. My father, Sam, served as a pilot in the United States Army Air Corps during World War II. He was stationed in the South Pacific. My parents set the groundwork for my community involvement. With the values they instilled in me, I worked hard to become a leader in important institutions in my community such as Mount Sinai Medical Center and Florida International University, among other organizations. This opportunity to serve my country in Europe is a testament to America's democracy, and it is a result of the values my family has instilled in me, my efforts to make them proud. My and Judy's parents serve as my inspiration, and they would be so proud to see my family embrace this incredible opportunity. In this role, I hope to inspire my children and my grandchildren to dedicate their lives and make their community and the world a better place. First and foremost, if confirmed, I will work with Belgium officials at all levels of government to advance American interests, protect the safety and security of American citizens, and promote American and democratic values. Freedom of speech, freedom of press, and freedom of religion are values that both our countries hold dear. If confirmed, I will also look forward to working with dedicated FSOs of the department, ensuring their safety and security. If confirmed, I will work closely with the Belgian government to address collective security concerns. Working together, we can advance our shared law enforcement and counterterrorism priorities at home and abroad, strengthening the transatlantic bond with NATO and the EU and pursue U.S. interests in NATO. To that end, I will encourage Belgium to fulfill its Wales defense 
pledge commitments to spend 2% of GDP on defense by 2024. If confirmed, I will work to advance our economic interest in Belgium, where more than 900 American companies support 120,000 jobs. In 2020, our combined bilateral trade was approximately $72.6 billion. Belgium is the 13th largest U.S. exports, and we are Belgium's largest trading partner outside the EU. Belgium is home to the Inter-University Microelectronics Center, or IMEC, which is other digital technologies. Belgium is also a key global logistics hub. It plays a leading role in vaccine warehousing and distribution to Europe and the world. If confirmed, I will work with our Commerce Department and our embassy economic experts to strengthen an already robust and successful partnership. Finally, if confirmed, I'll work diligently to lead our mission team and to work closely with all agencies to deepen our historic alliance with the Belgian government and Belgian people. Let me conclude again, noting how great an honor it would be to serve in this capacity. Thank you for your time and consideration. I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much. Thank you all for your testimony. <clears throat> we'll start a round of five questions before I recognize myself. Let me ask questions uh, on behalf of the committee as a whole. Uh, these are questions that we have asked to every nominee for every position. And I would simply ask each of you verbally to respond yes or no to the question. Uh, these questions speak to the importance of the committee places on responsiveness by all officials in the executive branch and that we will be expect uh, we will be expecting and seeking from you so first do you agree to appear before this committee and make officials from your office available to the committee and designated staff when invited we'll just go down the line yes 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 do you commit to keep this committee fully and currently informed about the activities under your purview yes yes yes, yes. Ambassador Brzezinski, did I yes. hear you say yes? Okay, thank yes. you. Do you commit to engaging in meaningful consultation while policies are being developed, not just providing notification after the fact? Yes. I do. Yes. Yes. And finally, do you commit to promptly responding to requests for briefings and information requested by the committee and its designated staff? Yes. 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 All right. Thank you. All of the <clears throat> nominees have answered yes to all those questions. So let me start by recognizing myself. Uh, Ambassador Bass, uh, you made a comment during your uh, opening statement uh, that there is a, a gulf or an, a, a, you know, an opening between that which you all who work with the State Department are expected to achieve and that which you're given the tools to achieve. Talk to me a little bit about what that gulf is and how you intend to bridge it. Thank you, Senator. Um, has several dimensions. First is uh, is staffing shortages. Uh, we're, we haven't even hired to attrition in recent years, uh, so we've got a deficit. We're asking, therefore, people, particularly overseas, to, to do more than one job or do more than one uh, can reasonably do in a period of time. Uh, secondly, our technology is way behind. You know, we essentially have an analog uh, organization in many respects for a digital age. Uh, we haven't leveraged uh, data expertise in the ways we should. Uh, thirdly, I don't think we're developing people professionally across a career to be prepared to take on new challenges, particularly interdisciplinary challenges. Uh, 
that involve uh, greater awareness of technology, uh, whether it's uh, cyber and emerging technologies, global health, climate change, uh, you name it. Um, and thirdly, um, I think we continue to have too many processes and regulations in place that impede innovation, creativity, and collaboration, um, and, and end up with stovepipes and silos of excellence that, that hinder our ability to mobilize resources to deal with the most pressing challenges we face. I appreciate the, that explanation of what you believe is the gulf, uh, and especially on the third one. I totally agree with you. I've been doing this for 30 years. Uh, uh, I believe there's uh, too much of an impediment to the type of flow uh, of information, experience, and uh, ability uh, that uh, doesn't happen. So I, I hope you will uh, make that one of your priorities. Uh, I mentioned in my opening remarks, uh, and this is not a postmortem on Afghanistan, but more so, what does that say about the, the department's ability to be prepared in advance? Not, not that one can fully see everything that would happen in a circumstance like that, but the ability to have that contingency ability uh, which, from my own perspective, is not quite one of the, uh, you know, attributes of the department. What, what do you see is necessary to do? Um, Senator, I think we, we really need to focus on a couple of things intently. Um, first and foremost, we need to rethink how we approach crisis management in the digital age, when information is more rapidly available, when uh, many people who might care about folks in harm's way, whether they're our own citizens or uh, local nationals, are getting regular updates personally from them in ways that, that uh, wasn't the case, for example, 15 years ago uh, when we were taking people out of Lebanon, uh, uh, southern Lebanon, in 2006. Um, we have to uh, uh, create and, and utilize uh, a wider range of, of ways and tools to communicate with Americans in harm's way, uh, with other people we are trying to support, um, and use that information to more effectively communicate with uh, those who are concerned about those people, including members of this committee and, and your colleagues in Congress uh, and your staffs. Um, second thing I'd, I'd say is I, I think we need to relook our, our organizational model for crisis management, which is pretty effective for short duration crises that are limited in scope or geography, um, but which uh, wear pretty quickly when we get into uh, week-long endeavors uh, where we're potentially looking uh, for folks to, uh, to sustain that effort strictly on a volunteer basis. Um, and I think we've got we to improve training and resources available uh, so we've got that cohort ready to go when we need it. Yeah. And on specific, as it relates to Afghanistan, uh, I hope we will create a referral process for other government agencies, U.S. citizens and residents, to alert the State Department of Afghans in need of evacuation still. My staff has flagged a number of cases over the last several months, many of which remain unresolved. Uh, that lack of response or resolution is disturbing. Can I get a commitment from you that you'll take action on these cases? Working with others, I understand, this won't so solely be you in a timely way. Uh, if I'm confirmed, absolutely, Senator. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Nathan, let me uh, go to you. Uh, we talked a little bit about the, the uh, bit of the inherent tension that was created uh, in the DFC between the development needs that are clearly 
the focal uh, point of the agency, and then the strategic uh, needs that we have. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you see managing that inherent tension? Thank you for the question, and uh, thank you very much for the conversation about this subject uh, yesterday. Um, the BUILD Act laid out a dual mandate for uh, the corporation, uh, both developmental and strategic, uh, but also directed the corporation to focus on the poorest countries in the world. So while focusing on the poorest countries of the world, mobilizing private capital to worthy projects uh, that can help their development, it is also important to think about uh, the strategic foreign policy concerns of the United States. I believe that good development is good for our national security um, and can help meet the challenges posed by our strategic competitors. Well, as we face the challenge of China, uh, we have countries that have stepped to the forefront of challenging China, uh, including countries like Lithuania. Uh, and I will hope that we will find ways when we can to focus on helping countries like that uh, that are meeting the challenge. It's a test for the West uh, at the end of the day, and the DFC, I think, can play a role in that. Finally, uh, Ambassador Brzezinski, um, you obviously have a great deal of uh, history here. But I do hope that I can get a commitment from you that if you are confirmed that the questions of uh, democracy and human rights that I feel are in Poland, particularly in the judiciary and the question of free press, are issues that you will press with the Polish government, even as we are steadfast in support of their territorial security and, and their uh, relationship with us as a strong NATO ally. If confirmed, Senator, absolutely. And the two things you state are true at the same time. Poland's borders must be secure, and democratic growth and renewal should occur in Poland. And with regard to your point about media freedom, media freedom is a core democratic element. And we have been watching closely what has been happening with TVN24 and its license renewal. The law that threatened it in the Polish parliament, the SEM, has been put on ice colloquially speaking, uh, as they put it, in Warsaw. But there's another bite at the apple that the regulators could have in February, with TVN's TVN7, which is the entertainment channel of the TVN group. And we are encouraged by Polish President Duda's words that he will veto any law that threatens media freedom, because media freedom is a core element of a robust democracy. Thank you Thank very you, much. Senator, Senator Risch. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Bass, I'll, I'm going to start with you. Um, I, I think I speak for every member of this committee uh, when I say that uh, the health incidents known as Havana Syndrome are, are at the very top of our list of uh, things that uh, need to be addressed. This is not a partisan issue by any stretch, uh, but it is of great concern to, to all of us in Congress, particularly uh, this committee. Uh, have you had anything to do? First of all, I assume you're read in on most of this stuff uh, as far as what's going on on Havana Syndrome. Uh, Senator, I have not yet had the opportunity to uh, uh, get the full brief on the, on the classified elements because of my status as a nominee. Right. And I, I, must, I would urge you that uh, the very first thing you do after you raise your right hand and take the oath is uh, get into a skiff and get a uh, briefing on this. There's there's a lot of people, there's a lot of different agencies that are working on this, but uh, 
we sure need a lot better answers than, uh, than what we've been getting. So I would urge you, uh, when you make your list of things that you want to accomplish, you put this right at the top, because this is, this is of critical importance to, to all of us. Senator, uh, as a three-time chief of mission, my guiding principle was always the concept of duty of care. Um, the the well-being and lives of everybody serving overseas in my mission was entrusted to me, and I took that responsibility very seriously. Um, and if I'm confirmed for this role, I plan to apply that same principle to the entire workforce, particularly uh, our colleagues who are suffering from whatever is causing uh, these incidents. Um, and I think we owe them our very best ability to care for them, uh, even while we try to figure out what's going on. Um, and I'm gonna make sure that uh, the, the, the components of the department that report to me directly, uh, that I'm responsible for their performance, understand that this is their top priority. I appreciate, I appreciate that. Uh, moving briefly to uh, the issue of, uh, of risk, uh, obviously, security measures are very, very important. I'm assuming that you're having the background that you've got, that you're, you are familiar with the, um, I know uh, complaints is probably a, a too strong a word, but uh, the concern of the employees regarding their ability to get out and about because of restrictions from the, from the uh, department. Are you aware of those, uh, the, the, those concerns? Um, not only aware of them, but but have uh, experienced them personally at different <laughs> points in time myself. Yes, Senator. But well, you're probably in a good place to uh, take a review of this, and I'd, I'd urge you to give it a review uh, once you get in, because we we do get that uh, those of us that uh, that travel out and that sort of thing. And I, I think a good first of all, we all know you have to have security, but you also uh, need a balance. And when you look at the restrictions on our uh, uh, diplomats versus the uh, uh, our our competitors, diplomats. There's a, there's a wide gap there, and we need to catch up to them. So I hope you'll do that. I hope you'll take a look at that, um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Nathan. Uh, I want to talk for a bit about the uh, about some of the developments. I, I wrote a letter recently, which I referred to in my opening statement. I assume you heard that regarding the solar projects and and the fact that uh, we're very concerned that. Uh, we're going to find U.S. taxpayers' money finding their way in the pockets of people that are employing slave labor in China. This is a real concern for us. Uh, can you have a, a look at that when you get into the agency and get back to me on that issue? Uh, absolutely. Taxpayer money should never be used to support forced labor. Well, I think I, I don't think you get any argument from any member of Congress in that regard. But uh, uh, for some reason, uh, that I think this has slipped through the cracks. So if you'd take a look at it, we would really appreciate it. Um, Mr. Brzezinski, uh, our, uh, obviously, I, I think the biggest challenge uh, that the United States faces on, uh, on a foreign relations field is the challenge from China. And, and Poland, uh, it, like every other country, uh, faces, faces that challenge. Can you give me your thoughts on uh, China's influence in Poland and what, the direction that's going? Thank you, Senator, and thank you and your staff for the Riche report that you did on Chinese malign influence in Europe uh, last year. I not only have studied it closely, but in ambassador school recommended to every participant to read through as it provides case studies of the deceptive practices China has been pursuing 
in Europe to advance its geopolitical role and position. Mr. Chairman, we need this man confirmed immediately. <laughs> um, with regard Maybe to- Maybe we could talk to Senator Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> with regard to Poland, let me particularly flag the Three Seas Initiative and support of it through the DFC um, and the importance of that. Because if there is a bulwark against broad Chinese expansionism in Central Europe, it is that. And I look forward to fulsomely engaging with my embassy team and country team to support the Three Seas Initiative. Um, but lastly, just anecdotally, reading the Polish press, Gazeta Wyborcza, Rzeczpospolita, cover what Huawei has been doing in Poland. And I've been watching closely the investigation of particular individuals associated with Huawei and look forward to learning more about how we can join with our Polish friends to push back on this challenge. Well, thank you very much. My time's up, but let me just conclude by saying I want to associate myself with the remarks of the chairman regarding uh, human rights issues and the values. Uh, th those are obviously Poland's a strong, strong ally of ours, uh, will be for a long time, but values matter. They're important to us, and I know you'll put that at the top of your uh, ledger also. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to all four of you for being willing to serve. Uh, often, um, once again, uh, this country uh, abroad would deeply appreciative of uh, your commitment to defending the security of this nation. Uh, I know a lot of work goes into preparing for a confirmation hearing like this, um, but now uh, you will have to get ready to sit and wait because we will move you out of this committee and then you will run into the Republican blockade that exists on ambassadors on the floor of the United States Senate. I can't imagine anything more dangerous than not having an ambassador, an incredibly qualified ambassador in Poland right now as uh, Russia amasses troops on Ukraine's border, as Putin and Lukashenko use migrants to destabilize Poland and Europe. Um, and so I'm glad that you're here, um, but um, this is a mounting national security crisis for this country. The fact that we have 85 pending State Department nominees, half of which are before this committee, half of which have cleared the committee or are on the floor. Um, Ambassador Bass, I wanted to ask you about this because uh, you are an experienced diplomat. You are going to be uh, in charge of uh, overseeing the management of the department. Uh, I just came back from Belfast in London where there's a very complicated, very important negotiation happening um, around the Northern Ireland Protocol could compromise the Good Friday Agreement, something that the United States cares deeply about. We don't have an ambassador to Dublin. We don't have an ambassador to London. We don't have an ambassador to the EU. Makes it kind of hard to conduct diplomacy without people in those top posts. What impact does it have uh, when we have a, a lack of ambassadors in place in so many key places around the world? Um, Senator, thank you. I, I think it creates, first and foremost, a degree of uncertainty uh, for host governments and, and uh, companies and, and others in that society uh, about uh, whether the person in charge is really speaking uh, on behalf of the nation at, at the highest levels of our government. Um, we've got great, talented, dedicated professionals uh, serving as charges all around the world. 
Um, but they're a bit out of position. Um, and uh, I think too often people look at them as a temporary solution. And particularly if they're trying to advance our interests in ways that are uncomfortable uh, or uh, create a cost for the local government, um, there's a tendency to want to wait them out. Um, so definitely has an impact on our ability to be effective overseas. These charges are excellent, um, but make no mistake, there are countries in which charges cannot get ambassador-level meetings. Um, there is um, a different level of public diplomacy that can be conducted by a charge than an ambassador. There is just a fundamental difference, um, no matter how qualified and experienced many of these charges are. Um, second question for you, Ambassador Bass. Let, let me first just associate myself with the remarks of uh, the ranking member on this question of um, pushing our diplomats out uh, beyond the wire. Um, both he and I have legislation, complementary legislation, that we hope you'll take a look at that could um, reset the incentives uh, to allow our diplomats to be out there representing America beyond the walls of the embassy. Um, but I wanted to ask you a specific question around vaccinations for Americans abroad. We've vaccinated our diplomatic employees, but we have a lot of uh, Americans living abroad in countries where the host country is not actually vaccinating non-citizens. So our citizens living abroad have only the choice to come back to the United States in order to get vaccinated. Um, can you commit to being in a conversation with this committee about how we may be able to find at least limited means in certain specific countries to be able to provide uh, access to vaccinations for Americans living abroad. I know this is a big project, maybe beyond the scope of the State Department if we talk about every American living abroad, but there may be a way to target this uh, to those who have no other option than the American government. Um, Senator, I'd, I'd welcome the, the opportunity of confirmed to, to con work closely with you on this to find ways to ensure that Americans are getting uh, at a minimum, equal access to vaccines on local economies from local uh, governments, um, particularly in the, the vast majority of cases where our medical professionals, because they're not licensed in those countries, are unable to do that directly. So uh, happy to follow up with you. And uh, Mr. Nathan, um, thanks for our time together. Just a quick word from you uh, on the opportunities to fund energy projects abroad. We have um, expanded out the mandate of DFC to allow for energy financing projects to be done in non-developing nations. But um, as we talk about China and Russia, this is a particular opportunity for the DFC to go out and build renewable energy capability in countries that are desperate to find sources other than petro-dictator regimes like Russia. Um, thank you for the time uh, that we spent together and thank you for that question. Uh, under the European Energy Security and Diversification Act, the corporation is authorized to operate in Europe for energy-related projects, and uh, that would be a priority of mine. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank, uh, thank all of you for your willingness to serve and for your sacrifice. Uh, let me start with... Uh, you, Mr. Nathan, um, the United States needs a long-term development finance strategy for the Pacific. Uh, DFC has been given a set of new tools to meet the needs of our partners in the Pacific. And I get that not every worthy project will pencil out, but we can collaborate with our partners uh, in the Pacific um, that are also financing projects in the region do, to do more to support economic growth 
with less risk to the taxpayer. Can you talk about where the opportunities are for DFC to um, use newer financing products, use newer techniques like technical assistance, feasibility studies to expand our development work in the Pacific? Uh, yes, thanks for the question and for uh, the conversation we had about this subject uh, in preparation for the hearing. Um, the Build Act gave the DFC uh, new tools and expanded authorities. As you mentioned, uh, technical assistance is one of them in order to prepare uh, countries which may not have the enabling environment uh, to accept investment. Uh, we also were given the equity investment tool, which uh, gives much more flexibility and uh, the possibility of going out on the risk spectrum uh, for making investments. So the Build Act has given uh, DFC tools to uh, make important and impactful investments in the region and, and elsewhere. Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about why it's important that DFC step up its commitment on climate-focused development as part of the mission, particularly in the Pacific? Yeah, well, um, first and foremost, the climate crisis impacts the developing world and the people who live there uh, greatly, uh, potentially more than anywhere else uh, in the globe. Um, it's important uh, to find projects that are climate-linked, which could include uh, smart agriculture, water systems, in addition to power generation, uh, so that these countries are prepared for uh, dealing with the climate crisis. Thank you. Uh, Ambassador Brzezinski, um, we've seen backsliding uh, with the Polish government, particularly on press freedom. Uh, Reporters Without Borders has cautioned that the government is pushing for greater state control of the media by censoring private outlets or forcing to close those who won't comply. Uh, can you talk about what you will do to elevate press freedom? Thank you. First of all, we will speak directly with the Polish government regarding the importance of press freedom and human rights generally. I mean, I come as an ambassador with a very clear message. America embraces equality. And that will be something that U.S. Embassy Warsaw will absolutely project and has been over the many generations of U.S. ambassadors that have been there before me. I've been watching with concern what you report, Senator, about democratic backsliding. It is important to stress that Poland's role as a NATO ally is partly about its keeping its commitments, not just militarily, but as Senator Menendez said earlier about its commitments on values. There are international commitments for Poland to keep as a NATO member, as an EU member, and as an upcoming chair of the OSCE. Um, and so we will be watching that closely. And then lastly, there's the self-interest associated with the business angle. Business is attracted to places characterized by legal certainty. Places that are more legally certain attract more business. And that's something that's relevant to both Americans and Poles. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Uh, Ambassador Bass, um, a lot of routine consular services were uh, either canceled or moved online. And, you know, you, you briefly mentioned this earlier during the hearing, but I'd like you to uh, flesh out where you think some of the changes that were made that were temporary ought to be made permanent and what other kinds of technologies and processes uh, ought to be explored 
in order to move the State Department and consular services in particular into the information age? Thanks, Senator. Um, you know, from my perspective, one of the most important things we do is provide those services to American citizens in issuing passports and, and facilitating uh, business travel and tourism to the states through, uh, through visa services. Um, uh, we've gotten, uh, I think, more agile in identifying where we have uh, excess supply, if you will, capacity to support uh, high demand embassies. Uh, so we're, we're now uh, doing quite a bit more remote adjudication. Um, uh, we're continuing to explore ways to reduce uh, the, the range of people uh, for whom an in-person appearance is required um, so that we're only really focusing on interviewing those people who are um, particularly high risk or uh, uh, for other reasons uh, come to mind like that. Um, and, and we're looking are these, at... Um, are these yep. permanent changes that, have, that are... Or, or do you anticipate these being permanent changes? Are these precipitated in part by the pandemic? Or was this already underway? Give, give me a sense for where we are. And I guess give me some reassurance that we're not going to snap back to the old way where everyone has to stand in line and wait to get a stamp. Um, so these are, these are changes that uh, have come about as adaptations to the, the limitations uh, due to the pandemic... Um, and we're currently in the process of looking at which of those we can apply as best practices and standardizing them going forward. And if I'm confirmed, uh, very much intent on doing as much of that as we can. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Congratulations, <clears throat> excuse me, to each of you on your nominations. And if confirmed, I look forward to working with you. Ambassador Bass, I'd like to begin with you and very much appreciated your thoughtful responses on how to make the State Department work better and be worthy of the dedicated personnel who work there. Um, I was also pleased to hear your mention of AHIs and your commitment to ensuring that people who are affected are taken care of. I, I know the State Department has made some significant progress in addressing that. Uh, that's very much appreciated. One of the things that um, I understand the State Department does for new ambassadors is to have um, briefings, and as part of that ambassador school, there is a briefing on AHIs. So can I ask you, uh, Ambassador Brzezinski, and you, Mr. Adler, if you will attend those briefings and ensure that you are up to date on how the State Department is dealing with um, Havana Syndrome or AHIs? Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Um, Ambassador Brzezinski, you were quite eloquent in talking about Poland's history and the partnership that the United States has had with Poland. And I appreciated that, and I think that's why I am so disappointed to see what's happening in Poland now. And despite assurances that we've been given on things like media freedom, um, I still have real questions about how Poland is approaching some of these issues. Um, on TVN24, for example, while they have renewed their license, um, the Polish regulator is still, my understanding is still contemplating asking the Constitutional Tribunal to review foreign ownership of media. And so that would put us back at square one. So I hope that you will be very direct with the leadership of Poland about the importance of 
media freedom of values and why that matters and their engagement in the EU and in NATO um, really depends on their continued commitment to the values that they embraced but now seem to be backsliding on. So can I ask you how you will approach that? Thank you so much, Senator, for that question. And yes, it's almost ironic that we find ourselves in our relationship with Poland in the situation that you described, Senator. And when you think about the genesis of post-communist Poland out of solidarity, what was the newspaper that supported the solidarity movement, Gazeta Wyborcza, which of course stands for Election Gazette, one of the free newspapers that emerged out of the solidarity movement. The movement was in part driven, its essence was about free media and you know, lack of infringement on media freedom and so forth. And so we will be watching closely what the regulator, Krit, Krit is what it's called, it's an, it's an it's acronym, um, as February approaches not too far away when it comes to TV and Shedem, the entertainment dimension or the entertainment piece of the TVN group and its license renewal. And we will also be watching for the, st the, st the status of the media law that was put on ice. And again, we were encouraged by President Duda's words that he will veto any law infringing media freedom. But this is something that we will work on with other friends of Poland's as well to make a unified and common message about values, because indeed that's part of the international commitments that Poland agreed to when it joined NATO and the EU. And it would be highly ironic of Poland as chair of the OSCE, and it's the next chair after Sweden, right. uh, to infringe media freedom while being the chair of the OSCE. So we will be watching closely, Senator. Well, thank you. H having said that, I do very much appreciate Poland's willingness to uh, support the opposition figures from Belarus who have moved into Poland looking for a safe haven. And at the same time, I think that has been very important in standing up to Lukashenko and what he's doing in Belarus. Um, they have not been as helpful, I think, with respect to the migrants who have been um, used as um, really a weapon yeah. by Lukashenko and Putin. Um, against the West and against Poland. So again, what can we do to continue to support Poland in their efforts to house opposition figures and yet make it clear that the treatment of migrants is not helpful in the overall goals that they're trying to achieve? It's a great question, and it's important to note that there are almost one million Ukrainian refugees who have found their home now in Poland and are assimilating and thriving quite well as an immigrant community in Poland having to flee what is happening in Ukraine, especially around cities like Wrocław and others. And I completely join you, Senator, in saluting Poland's support of the opposition leaders um, like Svetlana Tsitsikas-Nuskaya, um, who are standing up against the Lukashenko regime and to just take a step back and think, and just to, I ask myself, who would do what Lukashenko is doing, luring the poorest people of the world to Belarus to march through those dark, 
forests, cold forests near Białystok and Białowieża to be projected across the border. It's stunningly cruel, and we will work together with our friends in Poland and Europe to address that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Haggerty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, I'd like to turn my question to Mr. Nathan. Uh, good morning, Mr. Nathan. Congratulations. Thank you. It's good to see you here in person. You know, when we spoke in October, I said that the development of Finance Corporation would play a critical role in advancing the strategic interest of the United States. And this is because the DFC has the mandate and the resources to address critical national security challenges while they catalyze investment and help emerging markets. As ambassador to Japan, I signed the MOU as representative of the United States to partner with both Japan and Australia to drive economic growth in emerging markets and to provide an alternative to state-directed initiatives. The DFC should continue to focus on addressing critical national security challenges posed by malign actors such as China and Russia. As part of that effort, the DFC needs to be able to partner with middle and high-income countries to counter China. So, Mr. Nathan, if you're confirmed, would it help if Congress provided the DFC with more flexible authorities to invest in middle and high-income countries, which would offer the DFC more tools to enhance national security? Well, thank you very much for the question, Senator, and thank you also for the great conversation we had a few months ago. I, I really appreciate it. You know, the Build Act gave uh, the corporation expanded authorities uh, and expanded tools. And um, if confirmed, I look forward to helping the corporation take full advantage of, of those tools to do, as you say, to help counter the malign influence uh, of state-directed uh, investments author by authoritarian governments. That's a very important uh, objective as laid out uh, in the Build Act. In terms of expanding the operating uh, authorities for the DFC, uh, the European Energy Security and Diversification Act has done that in Europe uh, for energy-related projects. And I look forward to working with you and your colleagues to see if there's a further expansion that would uh, make sense. Well, if you're confirmed, I'll look forward to working with you as well to see if you need any further flexibility. Uh, you mentioned Europe and energy. I'd like to go to a, a, another quick question. This is about energy in developing countries. Most developing countries need fossil fuels to keep their economies going, meaning that many can't yet rely on green energy. If there's a project that would enhance development to help us compete with China, and it reduces emissions, but it does involve investment in fossil fuel energy, would you throw it aside just because it involves fossil fuel energy and leave them stuck with their legacy, uh, their, their legacy energy sources? Uh, no, I wouldn't. The, the um, DFC is not restricted in terms of what kind of technology choice it makes for energy projects. Access to reliable and sustainable energy is critical for development. Uh, in the last year, uh, in 2021, uh, there have been two projects uh, in Sierra Leone and in Iraqi Kurdistan uh, that the DFC funded that were gas projects. Got it. Uh, these I, I were highly we, developmental. Yeah, good. I, I just want to see us not be theologians about this and be practical and pragmatic about helping these countries because it's possible to reduce their emissions uh, while still getting them to a cleaner point. Uh, Ambassador Bass, I'd like to turn to my question to you. Uh, Secretary Blinken put you in charge of the evacuation effort in Afghanistan to help get American citizens and permanent residents citizens of allied nations, SIV applicants, and Afghans at risk out. Yet that evacuation resulted in the death of 13 Americans 
including Staff Sergeant Ryan Knauss in my home state of Tennessee. I have a couple of basic questions to ask you about what happened in Afghanistan. First, Ambassador Bass, do you consider the way that the United States withdrew from Afghanistan a success? Uh, Senator, uh, I think those of us on the ground did the best we could with uh, what we had to work with in the time constraints we had. Uh, the fact that we're still working to get people out uh, signals uh, we didn't have 100% uh, success in that period. Uh, but I can assure you that there are thousands of uh, career professionals who have invested parts of their lives in Afghanistan who continue to work uh, in various ways uh, to support the effort. Uh, I understand. My in staff are involved in that too. How would you grade your own performance as the coordinator for Afghan relocation efforts? Uh, as a noted, I, I did the best I could with what we had to work with on the ground. Um, I, I'm proud of the uh, people we were able to, to save, but I think every day about the people, uh, many of whom I know personally, who are still inside Afghanistan, we weren't able to reach. I'd just like to highlight the fact that to this day, though the U.S. Foreign Secretary has resigned to take, uh, take responsibility for Afghanistan, though the Dutch Foreign Minister has resigned to take responsibility for Afghanistan, no one yet in this administration has been held accountable for the 2001 withdrawal that resulted in deaths and mayhem and embarrassment to the United States. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, even conceded that Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan would, and I quote, a strategic failure. Ambassador Bass, I understand that you're operating under tough circumstances. Indeed, I do. Ultimately, you're responsible for managing the on-the-ground evacuation effort in Afghanistan at the Kabul airport. Instead of being held accountable for your part in the failures of the Afghanistan withdrawal, the Biden administration now wants to promote you. If confirmed, you will have even more responsibilities and oversee all aspects of management at the State Department. The fact that you're here today highlights the culture and lack of accountability at the State Department. As the former U.S. Ambassador to Japan, I understand firsthand that the State Department lacks a rigorous process to ensure that accountability is at the center of the State Department. This needs to change, and it needs to change now. As the ranking member on the subcommittee on State Department management, I'm committed to fixing this enduring problem at the State Department, in addition to a number of other structural issues. So, Ambassador Bass, do you agree that Congress should take a leading role in reforming and modernizing the State Department, even including new legislation? Uh, Senator, I, if confirmed, would very much look forward to working with you uh, on key parts of our modernization agenda and on ensuring that we are always respectful uh, of the principle of oversight, and we're operating and consistent with that approach. Thank you very much. That's exactly the commitment I'm looking for, uh, that you'll commit to work with us and continue to testify in front of the subcommittee if you're confirmed. I appreciate that commitment. You have Thank it. you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, the time of the Senator has expired. Uh, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, congratulations to all of you on your nominations. I've had a chance uh, over the years to meet all of you in some capacity or another, and I'm confident you will all serve our country well in the positions uh, for which you've been nominated. Uh, I look forward to supporting those nominations. Ambassador Bass, um, I think the last time I saw you was in Afghanistan. It was a number of years ago. Thank you for your service there, Turkey, Georgia, other countries. And uh, I'm pleased to see you um, nominated for this uh, position. Uh, I think you would agree, based on your experience, that if we're gonna continue to retain and recruit uh, talented foreign service officers. We need to do everything we can to support their families as they move around the world in service to the country. Would you agree with that basic premise? 
Absolutely, Senator, and, and really appreciate your sustained commitment to supporting our families. Well, thank you. I just want to ask you a couple questions uh, in, in that regard, because Senator Sullivan and I you know, teamed up a number of years ago to form the Foreign Service Caucus. Uh, the idea was to have a, a group of senators, bipartisan group, uh, supporting the mission and the families. Uh, and we then introduced uh, the, family, the Foreign Service Families Act, and I want to thank the chairman and the ranking member of this committee uh, for supporting that effort, which is now part of a substitute amendment uh, in the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Bill, which we all hope to pass uh, in the coming days. Uh, but we're going to go to conference with the House, so I just want to ask you a couple questions. I, I was um, overseas uh, visiting one of our embassies recently, and a constituent from Maryland came up and told me that uh, their son, their child, uh, could not get into the University of Maryland because of the residency uh, length requirements. Uh, a number of years ago, in order to address that issue with military families who also move around the world, uh, Congress passed legislation uh, to make sure that, uh, that you know, students, of, uh, kids of military families would be able to get that in-state in tuition. Um, do you agree that that's something that we should extend to Foreign Service families? Uh, I do, Senator. Uh, there's also, uh, as part of that coverage for military families, uh, they're allowed to terminate some of their, for example, cell phone contracts uh, if they're deployed essentially on short notice. Uh, do you agree that we should extend that same uh, benefit to Foreign Service families? Um, I, I think those kinds of practical arrangements would, would make all the challenges that our families face in moving frequently uh, that much more bearable, so yes. And an, another uh, finding uh, that was reached as part of the State Department Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review, this was a number of years ago now, was it's important to seek opportunities for the spouses of Foreign Service officers. Uh, because uh, you know we have a we have many you know families with two working spouses, um, and would you agree that it's important for every mission to look for every opportunity to provide employment to the spouse where appropriate? Uh, absolutely, and and not only to look for opportunities within the mission, but to to ensure that uh, work agreements, bilateral work agreements that are in place, whether they're formal or informal, are, are being adhered to, and, and that we're creating as many opportunities as we can on the local economy for people as well. Well, thank you. Uh, again, we, we hope to get this over the finish line a number of, uh, you know, a, a little ways still to go. Um, uh, I, I do also want to associate myself with the comments that the ranking member and Senator Murphy about allowing our diplomats to get outside fortress. Obviously, security is important. We recognize that. Uh, but it's also very important that Foreign Service officers get to know the country and the people uh, that they're sent uh, on our behalf to, you know, to, to represent. So um, I, I hope you'll work with us uh, on that front, too. I think that's a common consensus among most diplomats and Foreign Service officers. Um, if I could turn, Mr. Nathan, to, to you, congratulations on the nomination. and. Uh, uh, you know, I, I chair the Africa Subcommittee. Uh, Senator Rounds is the ranking member. We're very focused on trying to increase U.S. investment and development in Africa, uh, both to support um, African economies and also to help facilitate Maryland, you know, U.S. business investment uh, and jobs here in the United States. Can you just briefly talk about your strategy with respect to Africa? Um, you mentioned a couple investments in Sierra Leone. Um, other investments, uh, and anything in particular you're doing on the digital front? Uh, 
So thank you for the question, Senator. Um, if I'm confirmed, I definitely will uh, be interested in focusing on Africa. Uh, the agency in the last year has made investments from vaccine manufacturing in South Africa and Senegal uh, to, as you mentioned, uh, energy investments and the full range of um, both communications technology, uh, water, sanitation, health-related investments. Um, Africa is an area of focus for uh, DFC. And I believe in, 2000, in 2021 uh, was the area of the largest uh, investment commitment. All right. I would just, in closing, Mr. Chairman, say that, that China has five times more investment right now in Africa than we do. Um, we have a lot of reasons we want to be there and invest, but uh, you know, we have a long way to go uh, to do what I think we should be doing to fully engage. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership on the, uh, our foreign service families. Appreciate it. Senator Barrasso. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ambassador Bass, I want to first follow up on uh, some comments by Senator Haggerty. Uh, the, uh, you know, in August, President Biden oversaw a tragic, mismanaged withdrawal from Afghanistan. The withdrawal uh, is an epic failure, poor planning, zero strategy. Instead, this administration had cobbled together a last-minute, disorganized plan. People raced to the airport, Americans and allies left behind, and 13 soldiers lost their lives, including Riley McCollum of Wyoming. Tragic. Unnecessary. You were the coordinator for Afghan relocation efforts. You headed up the State Department's efforts to evacuate American citizens and Afghans. You know of the failures of the withdrawal. As, as Senator Haggerty said, nobody's been held accountable. Who at the State Department should be held accountable for this strategic failures and the disorganized plan? Uh, Senator, I uh, had a I had a narrow view, if you will, of the evacuation itself. I could see from the perimeter of the airport to the horizon. Um, uh, and I can tell you uh, about the heroic work of, uh, of so many on the ground. Um, uh, from my perspective, I think uh, it requires a bit more time and distance to understand uh, the whole effort. Um, I wasn't involved in the effort before August 17th, so I can't speak to the amount of planning that occurred or didn't occur. Um, but I agree with you that it's important for us to undertake a robust lessons learned exercise so that we're better positioned in the future. And uh, as I uh, indicated earlier, um, I think one of the things we need to do is relook at our crisis management structure and organization and capabilities so we're better prepared for uh, uh, complex crises uh, in the future. Thank, thank you. Uh, Mr. Nathan. Uh, Senator Van Hollen asked about the African subcommittee, uh, and um, you said you were interested in, uh, in focusing on Africa. One of the issues that you mentioned was energy. Senator Van Hollen mentioned the fact that China is investing five times more in Africa than we are, and I'm going to focus on that energy component that you just said of which you were interested, because I know what China's doing in Africa. The U.S. International Development Finance corporation needs to provide financing for energy projects that are most suitable to the needs of developing countries. And I see you're kind of like, oh my God, this is where he's gone, because you know what a bad job is happening right now. In April, this administration announced the DFC is going to halt all fossil fuel investments by 2030 to achieve a net zero carbon emissions portfolio by 2040. China's not going to do that. 
also announced that the DFC is going to make one-third of its entire investment commitments to be focused on climate change, starting in just two years. Your limitation on CO2 emissions for new projects is equivalent to one 400-megawatt combined cycle gas plant a year, meaning over the entirety of the life of the future of the world, you're only committed to eight natural gas power plants globally, forever. Eight natural gas power plants is not going to end energy poverty in developing countries. Worldwide, 759 million people are living without electricity. Stable, affordable, reliable electricity is the best way to help developing countries climb out of poverty. China knows it. We know it. This administration needs to understand it. Traditional energy projects are still the most affordable and still the most reliable. No modern economy will run on only variable renewable power. You're a smart man. You have to understand this. A country needs continuous, abundant energy to run a manufacturing plant, a data center, or a hospital. The things you're talking about doing require lots of energy. Abandoning important energy projects slowly, it just, it, this is going to slow our effort to re reduce poverty, and it's going to make China more powerful. You don't have to take my word for it. Listen to the leaders of another country. Well, so let's talk about Uganda. October 24th, this year, the president of Uganda wrote an opinion editorial in the Wall Street Journal. Solar and wind force poverty on Africa. You're forcing poverty on Africa, the policies of this administration. I ask Mr. Chairman this article be uh, submitted for the record. Without objection. Yep. Well, the president of Uganda has said, Africa can't sacrifice its future prosperity for Western climate goals. I'll, I could go on and on about this. I would just say, if confirmed, would you ensure the International Development Finance Corporation promotes an all-of-the-above energy policy? Or are you going to be handcuffed to a policy that says, we're going to let China take over with energy in Africa because we have our heads stuck in the sand? Senator, I, I agree with you that access to reliable, sustainable, uh, electricity is a critical component of development. I look forward to working with you and the committee to find ways to do that. Um, I, I believe it will have great development impact to bring electricity and clean power to, uh, to the people of the developing world. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My time's expired. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Well, let me thank uh, all four of you for your willingness to serve. Um, Ambassador Bass, I'm going to follow up on Senator Haggerty's point. Um, he and I uh, chair and a ranking member on the State Department subcommittee. And yes, there are lessons to be learned from Afghanistan, lessons learned over four administrations that led to the results that we saw this past month or two. But one thing is clear. When we look at the training opportunities for State Department personnel, there is major areas of concern uh, in regards to the number of personnel that are available in order to go through training, the length of the training, the type of the training, et cetera. So we held a hearing in our subcommittee, uh, and we were disappointed uh, that we were not able to have a representative from GTM present at that hearing. And I guess my request to you, if confirmed, do you agree to work with our subcommittee and to make sure that representatives of the agencies that are under your responsibility are available to us 
in order to develop a strategy as to how we can deal with, as we see it, the shortages in training opportunities for State Department personnel. Yes. Uh, I thank you for that. Uh, we want to work together on this, the two of us. We, we recognize uh, that there is need to take a look at the State Department. It hasn't been done for a while. And we look forward to, uh, if you're confirmed, working with you uh, to see how we can work Congress with you to provide that type of um, experience so that we have the people that have the proper training in the key positions rather than as it has exists too many times today, that's not the case. Mr. Brzezinski, I want to follow up a little bit on, on the Poland issue. I was at the Three Seas Conference uh, in Bulgaria. I had a chance to have a good conversation with President Duda uh, on several issues. But I really do think Poland's at a crossroads today. Uh, the countries that are under the dominance of the former Soviet Union made great strides, including Poland as becoming a member of NATO and EU. But we see the backsliding today, the, the prime example being Hungary, but Poland also is not too far behind in some of the actions that they have taken in regards to the protection of democratic institutions. So I appreciate the fact that you say that it'll be uh, high on your uh, list of conversations that you're going to have with the, with the Polish uh, government, but I think it has to be backed up by more than just conversations. Uh, their observations of support for democratic institutions do not bode well with internationally recognized standards. So I, I would hope that we'll be pretty definitive about Poland's future, very much linked to its democratic uh, commitments. And you mentioned the OSCE chair in office. I think that is a really great example that we can use that where Poland should want to display its firm commitments to the OSCE principles uh, when it has the chair in office. Thank you, Senator. And thank you for hosting the hearing you did a few weeks ago with the Helsinki Commission on Poland. That resonated broadly, including in Poland, and was covered widely, including the statements by the witnesses. Your point couldn't be more important, and I just cannot stress enough that Poland's role as a NATO ally and a NATO member and an EU member are linked to the commitments about democratic values and democratic practice. And if there is a U.S. foreign policy that is characterized by bipartisan consultation and, and engagement and agreement, it's U.S. policy towards Poland over the decades. And I can just invoke Richard Lugar and Senator Hank Brown and others who were titans in bringing a fulsome bipartisan approach to the future of Poland. And your point about democratic backsliding is heard loud and clear. And I look forward to engaging this committee and hopefully to welcoming you and members of this committee and members of the Senate to Poland to consult and engage directly with the Poles on this critically important issue. Thank you for that. Uh, Mr. Adler, I just really want to put on the record, maybe get a very quick response. Uh, Belgium, there's, there's some issues that we have concern. Probably the most, it's, it's use of technology and relationship with China companies. Uh, we've talked a little bit about China and the impact China is having 
uh, in regards to American national security interests. But I, I would like to get your thoughts as to how you see your role, if confirmed, in dealing with the penetration of China in technology in Belgium. Thank you, Senator. It is a very important issue. As I mentioned in my open remarks, IMEC is a major factor in semiconductors. But let me go to the point that you raised. I think what's most important is that we have to respect that Belgium has trade relations that are appropriate. But at the same time, you just can't accept trade and investment. What you need to do is make sure that you evaluate, you investigate, you know who you're doing business with and what they're doing. So I will have that as an important part of the communications to the Belgium government. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Coons. Um, thank you, uh, Chairman Menendez, Ranking Member Risch, for this hearing. And thank you to all of uh, today's four nominees for your willingness to serve, to continue uh, to serve. I've worked with all four of you at different stages in the course of my career here in the Senate, and I am greatly encouraged that our president uh, nominated four well-qualified and experienced professionals for these important roles. Uh, let me turn, if I could, first uh, to Mr. Nathan, nominee to lead the Development Finance Corporation. Thank you uh, for our conversation about the challenges and opportunities ahead. I believe you have a perfect background uh, for leading uh, the Development Finance Corporation. Look forward to working with you if you're confirmed. As someone who's uh, invested in and um, advised investors in multiple contexts and different projects across different uh, business sectors and geographies, could you just concisely explain why the DFC's equity authority can help drive the transformative development outcomes um, that many of us who help craft and support the Build Act uh, had in mind uh, when the DFC was created? Thank you, Senator, and thanks for the conversation uh, we had in your office yesterday. Uh, equity authority is an important tool uh, that the Build Act gave uh, DFC. It allows, uh, it would allow uh, DFC to go further out on the risk spectrum, open up the aperture of potential projects focused on the poorest countries where the operating environment uh, can be more difficult. It gives us a seat at the table. Uh, it, one of the intentions I understand behind giving DFC equity authority was to put it on an equal footing with other development finance institutions, uh, our allies, uh, and also with multilateral development banks. That's exactly right. And I, I look forward to working with you to remove some of the obstacles that prevent the DFC from using that authority the way it was intended. Um, we are still in the middle of a pandemic globally. Uh, one of the areas that I'm hopeful the DFC can make a significant difference is in vaccine production. There's already been some investment, as you referenced, some exploration at least in yeah. Senegal and South Africa. How could the DFC support scaling up vaccine production in the developing world in places like Latin America, Southeast Asia, as well as Africa that could both help us get out of this pandemic and prepare for the next? Well, this is an important issue, uh, as you say, not only for the current situation we're in, but also preparing the globe for any potential further uh, pandemics. DFC has made investments in the last year in India, a substantial investment for diversifying uh, vaccine manufacturing capacity, South Africa and Senegal. It's a pattern that, uh, if confirmed, I would be very interested in, in repeating throughout the developing world. Well, thank you. I look forward to working with you. Um, if I might, um, 
Ambassador Bass, um, just briefly tell me, if you would, how you would prioritize making sure that uh, our Foreign Service reflects the whole diversity of the United States. I think it's one of our greatest strengths. How will you improve um, issues like um, promotion, attrition, and prioritize diversity in, in hiring and promotion? Well, thanks, Senator. It, it, it absolutely is one of the key, in many respects, the key challenge we have in front of us today. Um, I think we need to, to look at the, the whole effort. Um, we need to question our assumptions about how we hire people, how we evaluate talent and select them. Um, as the Secretary noted uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, right, it's no longer the case that the talented Americans who want a career that involves a uh, significant chunk of their professional lives overseas, that their only option or one of a few options is the State Department. Um, and I think we still have a selection process that, that is geared too much to that assumption. Um, so I think we need to use creatively all of the hiring authorities we currently have uh, to broaden that pool that's coming in. I think we need to do a much better job of proactively supporting uh, individuals from underrepresented communities as they uh, uh, take on this career. Uh, I think we need to do a better job of professional development throughout, and I think we need to prioritize um, selecting for advancement um, uh, people who are not only uh, good diplomats uh, externally facing, but who are uh, promoting inclusive leadership and team building and collaboration within the organization. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I see I'm out of time. I look forward to working uh, with Ambassador Brzezinski and Mr. Adler in your roles. Um, I am hopeful my colleagues will work quickly to confirm both of you. I recently led a bipartisan delegation, and in countries where we don't have an ambassador, it weakens our ability uh, whether to help uh, the Poles stand up to um, the conduct of uh, Belarus uh, or it's to help our close partners and allies, Belgium, make good decisions in terms of uh, supply chains and investment and partnership. I look forward to working with the chair and ranking member on getting these good folks confirmed. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Welcome. Congratulations to each of the nominees. Uh, Mr. Brzezinski, as I'm sure you know, the Senate uh, is going to be debating today sanctions on Vladimir Putin's Nord Stream 2 pipeline. This committee has long opposed that pipeline with an overwhelming bipartisan majority. But that bipartisan commitment has been fractured, but perhaps it has not yet cracked. Uh, and I and my colleagues on the other side of the aisle are currently in an intense and granular negotiation over how best to proceed. Uh, I've imposed holds on a number of nominees at both the State Department and the Treasury Department in an effort to force the Biden administration to comply with the law uh, and stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. My colleagues on the Democratic side of the aisle disagree with the use of that leverage to try to stop this disastrous pipeline from going online. And indeed, it appears likely that we are going to be voting both on Senator Risch's sanctions legislation, which I emphatically support, uh, but also uh, what is functionally a side-by-side -side from Chairman Menendez that would impose sanctions on Russia if and only if Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, the reason that is suddenly so important 
is when Nord Stream 2 goes online, the odds of Russian tanks rolling into Ukraine will have increased dramatically. Uh, and my colleagues on the Democratic side of the aisle know that. They understand that. Uh, it's anticipated that most, if not all, Democrats will vote for these sanctions on Russia after the fact if Russia, in fact, invades Ukraine. Among the sanctions they will vote for are sanctions on Nord Stream 2 after the fact if Russia invades Ukraine. Now, it strikes me that if it is not in America's interest, if it's not in Europe's interest, if it's not in the world's interest for Russia to invade Ukraine, the way to stop it and the time to stop it is before the fact rather than after the fact by voting for the sanctions that both Democrats and Republicans have supported repeatedly, the sanctions that had worked, that had stopped Nord Stream 2, until President Biden surrendered those bipartisan sanctions in a massively unjustified gift of Vladimir Putin that has now put a target on Ukraine. The reason Chairman Menendez is introducing this, these sanctions is because the chairman understands the risk of Ukraine being invaded has increased and increased dramatically because of Biden's surrender to Putin. But of course, our Ukrainian allies are not the only ones who are endangered by Nord Stream 2 and by Russian aggression. When the Biden administration struck its deal with Angela Merkel in July, Poland and Ukraine together issued a joint statement saying that the deal, quote, cannot be considered sufficient to effectively limit the threats created by Nord Stream 2 and that calls on the United States and Germany to address the security crisis in the region and that commits that Ukraine and Poland will work together with their allies and partners to oppose Nord Stream 2 until solutions are developed to address the security crisis created by Nord Stream 2. They further wrote, quote, this decision has created political, military, and energy threat for Ukraine and Central Europe while increasing Russia's potential to destabilize the security situation in Europe perpetuating divisions among NATO and European Union member states. Mr. Brzezinski, if you're confirmed, you will be our country's ambassador to Poland at a time when they feel that, that the decisions from President Biden have put their own national security at grave risk. And you will be faced with the challenges of understanding and addressing those very real concerns. First, I'd like to ask you, how do you understand the Polish position to be on Nord Stream 2, and do you agree with that position? Thank you, Senator, for that very important question. Energy has been used as a weapon now for years by Vladimir Putin, particularly to try to weaken and intimidate Russia's neighbors immediately to the West. It is an incredibly important question and when I appeared before this committee in 2011, um, in advance of going to Sweden, I made clear that I was against the pipeline at that time. I think it's a bad idea. And I note also that President Biden and Secretary Blinken have said the same thing. The Polish position, as you intimated, is clear. They are against the pipeline. And they are worried about what is happening in the East. Secretary Blinken, 
recently expressed deep appreciation for Poland's vocal support for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity in his phone call with Polish Foreign Minister Rao. He noted that the United States, Poland, and other allies and partners are united in imposing significant costs on Moscow for its military aggression and malign activities. Would it be better to prevent that aggression before the fact or after an invasion occurred? Absolutely, clearly before the fact. And I think it's important that Secretary Blinken is in Latvia today and yesterday to consult with NATO allies regarding what is happening in the East and what to do next. And then he'll go to Stockholm to meet with OSCE partners in part on the same topics. I can tell you, if confirmed, Senator, as ambassador to Poland, that I will be unwavering and deeply committed in support of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. And I'm gonna work with Poland, our ally and other partners to address Russia's destabilizing activities in the region, what Lukashenko has done on the border of Eastern Ukraine in those forests in Białowieża is outrageous. And uh, I will keep you and this committee apprised and consult with this committee and engage with this committee accordingly. Thank you. Senator Risch. Uh, very briefly, um, Mr. Brzezinski, I, I want to, I did, I ran out of time and I wanted to touch on one other subject that I think will be helpful for other nominees as we go forward. Uh, we had a situation where uh, a person who was nominated to be ambassador to the UN had given a speech that was uh, uh, regarding China, and it was significantly softer than it should have been. Um, she uh, deeply regretted that. Uh, she recanted it here at the hearing. I supported her. I, I felt it was one step out of, one step that uh, that she took that uh, didn't color everything else that she did, and, and I, I still stand by that. In 2019, you gave it a speech to the China Development Forum in Beijing, uh, which I now understand you have some reservations about also. And I wanted to give you the opportunity to clear the record. But more importantly, uh, I, I think uh, it's important that people such as yourself who uh, have a history of uh, dealing uh, so well in foreign relations matters resist in giving these kind of speeches and uh, they're unfortunate and then uh, when people come here uh, they, they have to uh, backtrack on it. I wanted to give you a chance to clear the record on that if you would please. Thank you Senator for that important question and again thank you for the case studies that that you and your leadership and your staff pulled together in the Reich report on China's malign activities in Europe that you did last year. I wish I had read that report before I did that speech. That speech was a family narrative that goes back to my family's long history in the Sino-US relationship, and I meant to invo invoke and draw perspectives and observations from that family narrative. It was also about hope, misplaced hope, about diplomacy having uh, being the answer to the problems that we have with China. Your report edified me. As I said, I've shared with my fellow students in ambassador school how important it is, and now I feel personally it should be required reading. But more, I, I, would, I would also offer this, Senator, I'd be happy to continue this conversation in a classified session to offer examples of what I did as ambassador in Stockholm 
uh, between 2011 and 2015 with regard to the challenges and the threats your report so clearly edifies? Because I think that you will see that I walk the walk, sir, and will continue to walk the walk if confirmed and get a chance to go to Poland. And of course, walking the walk most, uh, among most important policy steps one can take is with the Three Cs initiative and our support of that through the DFC because that will be an important institution among others in terms of pushing back on China's malign influence in Europe. But absolutely, I, I would like to amend the narrative I offered in that speech and to take more into account what had happened in Hong Kong, what had happened vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and elsewhere. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Uh, let me just uh, close out this session with a couple of <laughs> observations for the record, because I would be remiss if I didn't. The situation in Afghanistan uh, proceeded uh, with the previous administration under President Trump making decisions that ultimately led to what I think was an irreversible course. When you enter into a surrender agreement in which you ultimately say to the Taliban, we're going to get out on a date certain, something that my Republican colleagues have railed against in every iteration that has ever taken place, when you reduce the troop level before the new administration comes in to a troop level that cannot sustain security, when you ultimately release thousands of Taliban prisoners and give them to the Taliban to augment their fighting capacity, and for the most part you say nothing during that time period, it's really hard to understand uh, the, uh, uh, the lack of concern then and the concern now. We all agree that we have to find ways to be uh, better about when we have to deal with an emergency. But as much as uh, none of us liked the end result, that result was in the making. And there were no voices at that time suggesting that, in fact, that was not a good priceless to move. Finally, uh, on the question uh, of Nord Stream, it is clear that uh, I have supported uh, sanctions against Nord Stream. I would have liked to have seen sanctions posed on Nord Stream during the totality of the hundreds of miles that were being laid under the Trump administration, for which there were no sanctions until the final day of President Trump being in office. The belief that somehow Nord Stream alone is going to stop the Russians and Putin from potentially invading Ukraine is uh, beyond belief. That's why the amendment that I will offer, assuming we move ahead, is the mother of all sanctions uh, on Russia. Swift and a whole host of other elements which clearly get to the heart of Putin, his pocket, and his cronies. Uh, and in that regard, uh, to send that clear message now before the Russians make any calibration in terms of taking any offensive action against Ukraine is critically important. It is not an after-the-fact reality. It is before the fact of what takes place so that the Russians will understand clearly and unequivocally what the consequences will be to them. To me, that is far more powerful. Now, uh, with that, I was about to close this hearing.
But I see Senator Markey's coming in, and if he wants to get in his questions really quick, we will so observe it. Senator Markey. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, Wednesday morning in the United States Senate is like the old TV show, Supermarket Sweepstakes. They, they've, they, uh, they uh, scheduled four separate hearings simultaneously, all beginning <clears throat> at the same time. And so I apologize to you. And, and Mr. Chairman, I, I won't take any extended time except to just uh, recommend uh, Scott Nathan as uh, just an exemplary uh, public servant, someone who will make uh, a huge difference. His background uh, in, uh, in uh, finance, his experience in the public sector just makes him the perfect person to take on this huge responsibility uh, that the United States uh, has to uh, play in, the, uh, in this coming generation. So I, I didn't want to take up any um, uh, unusual amount of time, Mr. Chairman, other than I just wanted to make that uh, point and to thank everyone else who is here for all of your great um, willingness to uh, commit to uh, serving our country. So thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Uh, the record of this hearing will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, December 2nd. Uh, I'd ask uh, our colleagues that questions for the record be submitted no later than that time. I'd urge the nominees to answer the questions expeditiously and fully. Sometimes um, when nominees uh, are skimpy in their answers or not substantive in their answers, it causes members to not agree to move the nominee forward at a business meeting. That doesn't mean we need a treatise, but by the same token, it means be responsive and to do it as quickly as possible. And if that happens, we hope to get your nominations before a business meeting with the cooperation of the ranking member. With the thanks of the committee, this hearing is adjourned.